So here we are at episode 10, reviewing a race where Lewis Hamilton has won once again. But don't let that deter you, don't click off this episode, because we'll be discussing that restart, George Russell, and the sacking of our most favourite Mexican. Let's get started. Sebastian Vettel's got it to Max Verstappen, and under braking, Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn. Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind. Oh, it's a tight finish. It's a photo finish, adding another championship to his collection. It's Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. Oh, Tom, if you if you rhymed episode with Mexican, you would have had like a real classic stanza there. I think that was a real missed opportunity. That was what I was going for, to be fair. Oh, right, because when you were saying it, I was like, and now he's going to complete the rhyme. Hold on a minute. It, it, it's not a rhyme. That's really, really irritating. I feel like you have to go back and like find a rhyme now. On his 18th attempt, and with Lewis Hamilton being nowhere to be seen, the stars were aligned. Finally, the 24-year-old British-born Thai driver, Alex Albon, has finally done it. Angus, take us through it. Yes, thank you, Tom. So Alex Albon finally, finally got on the podium, as you said, at the 18th attempt in a Red Bull in his 30th race of his Formula One career. He may have never thought that he might get to this stage based on some of the bad luck he's had and some of the poor performances he's had uh, over the, the preceding races this year. And speculation was mounting that he might be dropped to Toro Rosso again after Pierre Gasly's phenomenal win at Monza. But Alex Albon, the British tyre driver, has finally got on that podium. It may only be the third step of the podium, not the top step like he might have got in Austria in the first race of this season had his pass on Lewis Hamilton been successful, but he finally did it <clears throat> with a brilliant pass around the outside of Daniel Ricciardo on lap 51. Um, just to take you through his race, so the, I guess for him it really presented itself as an opportunity when Max Verstappen was taken out at the second corner after uh, a horrendous start for Verstappen himself and also possible engine problems. That took usually the, the th one of the three fillers of the usual podium spots out of the game, giving Albon a great chance to take his first podium. However, he did make it difficult for himself, it is safe to say. <clears throat> he had, despite there being three starts uh, for him to take an opportunity to move up the field, he arguably had shockers with all of them. His first start where he got past his teammate Verstappen, of course, but dropped behind Charles Leclerc. The second restart, after the first red flag, he dropped to seventh from fourth, where he started, and had to make his way back up. But he did that with the usual sort of overtaking guile that he has shown when he's been in the Red Bull seat over the last 12 or so months, passing Sergio Perez on lap 18 for sixth place, going past Charles Leclerc when the Ferrari driver pitted and staying fifth until lap 43 when Lance Stroll's crash into the barriers at the fast Arabiata corner caused the second red flag. But once again, Alex Albon was determined to make life as difficult as possible, had another poor start and was running briefly sixth on the straight down to the first corner, managed to nudge just past Lando Norris before doing a brilliant move on the outside of Sergio Perez in one of the corners at the end of the first sector. In my opinion, his most important move of the race, because if he, if he hadn't done that, with 12 laps to go, he would have been faced with passing both Sergio Perez and Daniel Ricciardo. And arguably, it might have demoralised him had he not nailed down that first move immediately after he lost it. If you also bear in mind that the two times that he's almost got a podium in the past, he has had contact in the last few laps. Yes, it has been with Lewis Hamilton steering into the side of him, but arguably that might have played on his mind. However, he did the all-important move on Perez, and then when it came to lap 51, 
He'd gradually been closing on Daniel Ricciardo the laps before, and then he passed him with a brilliant move around the outside once again at turn one, sealing third place, which after a brief, he briefly closed in on Bottas, and for a second, we maybe had hope that uh, there might be the breakup of the Mercedes 1-2. But in the end, Bottas pulled away, and Alex Albon maintained third place until the chequered flag. We got the lovely radio message on at the end, saying how he was more he definitely came across as relief more than anything was the primary emotion after christian horner said congratulations to him alex albon was uh, very thankful for red bull sticking with him through the the tough times that he'd had they've they've stuck with him and you hope now that they they he will reward the faith they have shown in him and you could see possibly this being hopefully the first of many podiums for alex albon on a little side note, a little fun fact to end, he is the first Thai driver to stand on the F1 podium, become the 29th different country to uh, register a Formula 1 podium. This is after being the second Thai driver ever to race in Formula 1. If you're interested, it was Prince Bira in the 1950s who took two fourth place finishes. However, Alex Albon surpassed the, la uh, the landmark legacy of Prince Bira by getting that third place on the podium. And congratulations to Alex Albon. Do you think Prince Biro would say something smiling down from heaven? What he would say, he'd be like, I can't believe Albon took my best ever finish. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so anyway. gutted. <laughs> I'm... I, did, I, I did, sorry, I did the research and Prince Biro, sadly, despite coming fourth on two occasions, was both, on both occasions a lap behind third place. So he never really took oh. <laughs> I'm so pleased for Alex. I mean, I haven't made it a secret before that I'm such a big fan of him. And obviously the whole situation with Pierre last week was amazing, but obviously meant that there was a lot of pressure on him and, and his seat, as you mentioned. And so I was so, so, so happy to see him get there. And obviously it was quite a shame to see, obviously he was happy, but that radio message, it, it was so heartbreaking that all he was was relieved. It's like, no, you can actually celebrate this. And, um, and obviously there was lots of lovely pictures and videos of him smiling and, and then obviously I absolutely loved the podium ceremony. So I was very happy for him. And I really do hope this is the first of many. And I think it was exactly what he needed because after so many knocks um, and so many negative comments from the media, um, he really, really needed that boost. And I think that I hope that it might be that, that moment that sort of triggers something in his mind and in his attitude. And hopefully we can see a lot more from him in the next uh, few races. Yeah, that's right, Liv. A massive congratulations to Alex Albon. And I think it's fitting to repeat the words from Stoic the Vast to Hiccup Horrendous Haddock III in the first How to Train Your Dragon film. Odin, it was rough. I almost gave up on you. And not only did I nearly give up on him, I have an inkling Red Bull nearly did too. But I'm glad he didn't get gaslied, or is that kivyatted? It's so hard to keep up these days. Um, and it seems like Red Bull can finally keep the seat filled for an entire season. But let's not pretend this is going to happen often. As you said at the beginning, Tom, the stars did align in such a way that Alex managed to get onto the podium. And with people like Max Verstappen out of the way, this was the time for the young driver to shine and, and show everyone what he was actually made of. And I hope this sort of springboards his confidence. It, it shows him that he can do this again and that in future he will be a rising star because at the moment he hasn't really been able to demonstrate what he can do and I fear that later on in the season as well he's going to be stuck behind the others other drivers who who perhaps will be able to beat him in the car especially as the Red Bull is so hard to drive this season but let's not take it away from him this was the moment to demonstrate that actually people were wrong and I'm so glad that he did because 
Pierre Gasly showed Red Bull that they were wrong giving up on him. And I feel like everyone was starting to become a little bit anti-Albon. And so, yeah, this is really his moment to shine. And it's just indicative of him being a good driver, the good driver that we know he was. Yeah, I mean, I can only really echo what's been said before. Congratulations to Alex Albon, not only for his third place, but for finishing the damn race. I mean, 12 only finished out of the 20, and, you know, many of the cars were caught up in accidents and forced to retire uh, through no fault of their own. I mean, Max Verstappen's teammates is a testimony of that in the first lap. Um, and as we say, it wasn't easy for him. Arguably, he made it a bit more difficult for himself, but we saw with Verstappen and with his car and the, the many restarts he had to undergo that this Red Bull car or his Red Bull car or both of them were low on power and low on acceleration and traction getting off the grid. So yeah, it's you know congratulations to him in, in that regard as well, and congratulations because he had to go and overtake a very, a very feisty and a very driven, as we heard from his his radio message to his team. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo wanted this more than anything, not only for himself but also to um, win that tattoo bet with his team principal. So as I said, you know it wasn't a walk in the park; it wasn't easy, but he's shown to all his friends and foes. Are those who want him to, to succeed and otherwise that you know the guy can do it and you know I, w I wouldn't say for one moment this settles the discussion over who will take the second Red Bull seat currently his seat for the 2021 season but um you can't sit here and say this has done any negatives towards that do you not think it settles the argument though because Albon has challenged for a podium three times now and now that he's actually done it, and he's done it for his third time, I think that sort of eliminates the thought that Albon is just a bit of a fluke. So, it could be argued that this does settle the argument. It will be Albon next year, because Red Bull is desperate for someone who can challenge for the podium, and given a slightly nicer car to drive, I think Albon absolutely should have the Red Bull seat, because there's no one else, and they've said that Pierre Gasly's not going to have it. Um, I mean, yeah, I think... As I say, he's definitely got one, one foot in the door, so to speak. But looking at his form consistently this season, he's not been up there with Verstappen, helping him out against the team Mercedes. And regardless of this great podium, and yes, he's been unlucky, at the end of the day, it's it's recorded on his form and his record and Red Bull's record as a constructors this season next will be recorded on how well both cars do throughout a season. Uh, if he's able to make this more consistent in insofar that he's able to be higher up the grid, the finishing grid, then yeah, I think he does he does make sure he gets that second seat. But I don't think we should say it's over purely because of his, let's say, fine, bordering on lacklustre at times form this season. Yeah, but that's not necessarily Alex Albon's fault. That's due to the car. The car is very difficult to drive. Verstappen said that, Christian Horner said that, you know, you, you could say, all right, we're going to get rid of Albon and we're going to dump Mick Schumacher in there. But in my personal opinion, he would have exactly the same problems because it's it's a really tricky car to drive. So it's nothing to do with Albon's driver performance. It's tailored for Verstappen, though. That's the problem. Verstappen is the one who could, who could most likely override a bit of a dodgy car. Like we've, seen, we've seen that a lot of times. And it's usually, I mean, at the end, I don't know, if I was Red Bull, I would sort of, I almost would if because they're not they're for, literally for six or seven years now they've been close to the top but like not not quite there. So I guess if you did want, I know they want the constructors championship 
uh, badly because they've had that like, swooped away from them by Mercedes. But and like when you see that Verstappen has the potential to challenge for a drivers' championship, I guess if you saw him being close like that, you would give more resources to him. I don't know. I don't know what Red Bull's thinking would be on that. But the problem with the the Verstappen only model is it it just shoots Red Bull in the foot if they want the constructors because to get the constructors you need to be competing with someone like Mercedes where both drivers can get on the podium. So surely if they're tailoring the car to Red Bull in such a, a biased manner, then Albon isn't going to get on the podium and therefore it's only going to be Verstappen. So really they're actually going for the driver's championship, right? Because that's the only one they can get with only one driver on the podium. But I still yeah. think Albon could have done better on numerous occasions regardless of whether the car's his car or Verstappen's car. Yeah, but with this, with this, um, I was going to say win, with this podium, that may cause a change in his mentality that fixes that. And then, I mean, I'm not saying he's going to become Verstappen tomorrow, there's no way, but it may just make enough of a difference that they're competing a little bit more. Like, at the end of the day, he was fourth, I, I believe, in qualifying. So that's, that's like shows that he has it in him and that the Red Bulls can be close to the Mercedes as that's biggest second team so I think hopefully that this will at least um, prove enough of a incentive or enough of a trigger for him to to make those maybe that well, I was gonna say make the moves that he was that he previously wasn't making but you know what he's always been making those moves I think he's great and fiery and good at making moves I don't know what it is I think he what there was so much pressure on his shoulders and I'm, all I think is that this may have released it slightly and he even admitted to a weight off his shoulders so that's that's not rule out future even better results for him. It was back on and then it was off. It had started and then it stopped again. Let me be clear, friends. The rolling restart of lap seven had all our stomachs in knots. Tristan, take us through this. Well, I know what you're thinking. Tuning into a Formula One podcast, you're thinking, God, I could really do with a good physics lesson. So fear not. I'm here to take you through exactly what happened during the first restart. Now, the traffic slinky effect is something that any road traffic analyst knows inside and out. In fact, the average motorist has also experienced this effect. It is behind some of the longest unexplained traffic jams on motorways and freeways and is the reason why, for some unexplained reason, you're driving along a road before having to come to a stop and then moving off again. One would expect there to be an accident or maybe some roadworks or even traffic lights. But no, there is no problem at all. So why did we stop? Well, it's all about the principles that cause travelling bodies to concertina, compress, then stretch back again. Or as we would say in the physics world, rarefy. So a quick explanation of what's going on that causes a ghost traffic jams that we all know and hate. Well, we start off with a car that is travelling along at let's say 100 kilometres an hour and it suddenly breaks from 100 kilometers an hour to 80 kilometers an hour. Now, in a perfect world, the car behind would see the car in front slowing down, and so to keep the same distance between itself and the car in front, it would also slow down at the exact same time, from 100 kilometers an hour to 80 kilometers an hour. And then the car behind that car would do the exact same thing, and so forth. And in this perfect world, there'd be no compression as each individual is reacting at the same time to slow down and keep the distance between itself and the car in front the same. But the issue is, we don't live in a perfect world. Far from it. 
On the motorway, for example, each individual has some sort of inertia. Human reaction times, braking ability and initial velocity all have to be taken into account. So what happens instead is this. Car A slows down in about 5 seconds from 100 km an hour to 80 km an hour. Car B sees car A slowing down but has to react in order not to crash into the back of A. But due to this reaction time, they have less time to slow down, let's say 3 seconds to do so. Therefore, as the goal is not to hit the car in front, they hit the brakes harder. And as speed equals distance divided by time, distance equals speed times time. So in order to try and increase the distance between car B and car A, so that B doesn't hit the back of A, the speed has to be reduced. So car B has to slow down much more than car A because they have to travel less distance in order not to hit the back of car A. If car B braked the same amount as A, then due to the reduced time they have available, due to them taking time to react to the car in front, they would in fact travel too much distance and get closer to car A and could even hit them from behind. Now this then occurs again with the car behind car B. Let's call that car C. So car C has to react to car B braking and due to their reaction time, they have to slow down so not to collide with B. But because B had to slow down to let's say 70 km an hour in order to offset that reduced time they had to slow down in order not hit car A, car C would have to slow down to let's say 60 km an hour in order to counter their own effects of reaction time. So with this model, we see that car A braking suddenly leads to cars behind them having to react and in the end bunching up closer to each other as they have to slow down more and more in order to avoid hitting each other. And that's what we call compression. But then the cars then have to re-accelerate back up to the initial cruising speed. So whereas A only needs to go from 80 km an hour up to 100 km an hour, so that's an increase of 20 km per hour, car C has to go all the way from 60 up to 100. So in our, in our extreme model, within two cars, we've got a 50% increase in the amount of acceleration needed to get back up to the initial velocity. So this demonstrates that fluctuation in speed increases as the process of compression and rarefaction continues down a line of traffic. And that happens until you achieve the maximum possible fluctuation. In this case, the car going from 100 km an hour all the way back down to zero, and then having to re-accelerate all the way back up to 100. But what happens when you get to this maximum point? Well, because you can't go into negative speeds, you can technically reverse, but that wouldn't make sense. What happens instead is the amount of time you're sitting at zero starts to increase. And so this is what leads to the long, lengthy ghost traffic jams that we've all experienced at some point or another. So why have I spent the last couple of minutes explaining this? Well, the effects of this process were seen during the Mugello Grand Prix with devastating consequences. During the first safety car restart in which Bottas was leading, when restarting the race, Bottas decided not to just go for it and accelerate fast out of the last corner, trying to get away from the rest of the pack behind him. Instead of doing this, what he instead did is he bunched everyone up, 
What then followed was a huge crash involving Sainz, Giovinazzi, Latifi and Magnussen all crashing into each other during the start-finish straight, leading to the first red flag of the race. So what happened? Well, as I just explained, it's all about the concertina effect. And reviewing all of the cameras, it looks like a dangerous combination of overconfidence leading to restart assumptions. So to set the scene, we're going to focus on the mid-pack, starting with Daniel Kvyat. Kvyat notices that there is a small gap between himself and Ricardo, and not wanting to be far behind the car in front, he accelerates just a little bit to catch up. Now, it appears that Ocon, who is following Kvyat, sees the gap between himself and Kvyat grow, and due to things like reaction times, he then has to accelerate to catch up himself to Kvyat in front. However, as the gap has grown, as Ocon had to react to Kvyat's moves, Ocon has to accelerate to a higher speed in order to overcome the fact that it took him longer to realise that he had to close the gap. So what happens next? Well, Russell sees Ocon accelerating away, and with Ocon accelerating harder than Kvyat in a given time, he has travelled a further distance, leading to the gap between the cars becoming even larger. So Russell then does the same thing, except he now has to overcome both his reaction time and the increased speed from Ocon, so he accelerates even faster to close the gap. And just like with our motorway example, the fluctuations in speed starts to grow as the wave goes down the order, meaning that by the time you get down to the back of the pack with Latifi or Giovinazzi, they're trying to overcome even larger distances by accelerating to nearly top speed. So even though Bottas at the front is moving relatively slowly, due to the mid-pack creating a refraction wave, the cars at the back need to move far quicker. But then comes the problem, the mid-pack then closes the gap and Ocon only needs to de-accelerate by a small amount, but Russell needs to slow down even more to overcome his initial acceleration, and then by the time you get to the back of the pack, someone like Latifi is having to go from nearly maximum speed back down to the speed that Bottas and the front of the pack are travelling in order not to hit the car in front. And as we saw, this just wasn't possible and all the cars hit each other. Just like an elastic band, they were all stretched out before being compressed together in one gigantic crash. So whose fault was it? Well, I don't really want to blame anyone because it wasn't really anyone's fault. It's not really fair. It was just physics in action. But something we should say is it certainly wasn't Bottas's fault. In future, cars should try to overcome the gaps between them and the car in front by increasing the time it takes them to catch up, accelerating less hard, giving other drivers the time to be aware of what's actually going on. And in Mugello, the reality was as soon as each car began accelerating as fast as they could to catch up to the cars in front, then it introduced an ever-increasing fluctuations in speed, leading to the almighty crash and the red flag that made Sunday's race so much more dramatic. Well, I think that was a very comprehensive detailing and displaying of what happened on Sunday. So thank you very much, Tristan, for that. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add, but I think there's a clear distinction in my mind between somebody being at fault and somebody being to blame. So for me personally, I would agree and say that Russell, unfortunately, and maybe Latifi were, quote-unquote, at fault for what happened next. But I don't think they were to blame for what happened after that. Because if you look at the disparity between how the cars react 
to Russell shooting off, or accelerating a bit more, I should say, it's very different. You see Giovinazzi and Sainz and, and co. racing forward, but you see Magnussen ahead of them not racing forward. So you can't go and say that Russell's to blame because there are different reactions from individual drivers that he can't legislate for. So in that regard, we're seeing an investigation going on by the FIA. I don't believe that's been concluded yet. I knew to start with they were considering that Kvyat was at fault, which I believe they're saying he's now not at fault, and rightly so. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that no one's penalised for this because this is purely a racing incident which drivers, as you say, have to learn from. It's driven more by panic of, I can't let him get in front of me or I've got to go and do this so that I'm not made to look like a fool on the restart. And um, so you can understand from a human perspective why that's done. But the big problem for me is not with the races themselves necessarily, the drivers. It's with having a combination of green lights and flags with Bottas or the race leader dictating the pace because as soon as you see that green flag or light instinctively as I just touched upon there as a driver you want to get going but we all know the race leader this time Bottas was dictating the pace so in my mind on a straight like we're seeing there at uh, Mugello you get rid of the green flags on this occasion I'd say perhaps on all all of the straights on a circuit where the, the driver is likely to restart the race and you simply just allow the race leader to, to dictate the pace and to decide when they go. Because having these two things conflated, at least a confusion, it's unhelpful, it's unnecessary, and I think it's, that is partly what is to blame. I completely agree with you, Tom. I was essentially going to say the same thing. That green light, I blame it completely. For me, you cannot blame a racing driver for taking a chance, taking an opportunity, accelerating, like... In my opinion, not one of them is at fault. Like, I know that sounds stupid because technically one may be. But in my opinion, what not, not one of them did anything wrong. They did what a racing driver instinctively does. They are born, well, not necessarily born, but they are raised and they, are, they learn to be the most competitive as they can possibly. Even if you told them not to, they're racing drivers. They're going to take those chances. They're going to fill those gaps. So for me, I wouldn't think about blaming a driver, but... I personally agree with that that green flag, that green light that appeared along above the straight. That's just what how stupid. Like the second you see that as a driver towards the back of the pack, you're gonna presume you're gonna go. Like it, oh, it really made me mad. And for me, yeah, that's the complete like answer to that question about like what who's to blame, what's happened. It was the green light, and I really hope that FIA, like as you suggest, Tom, do make some changes. I mean, if they talk to the drivers and say try and be a bit slower on the restarts or whatever what the hell's the point in that drivers are not going to do that they're instinctively quick they're instinctively sharp and they instinctively make dangerous choices because it's their job so don't i don't think the drivers need to change anything but i do think something needs to change when it comes to the safety and the um how that race restart is signaled especially on straights we are going to is my boy sergio now it's you now yeah oh it is oh, right ease before we start I'm mentioning the former Force, or well, the Force India owner. How would you say his name? Because I'm saying it is Vijay Mala. V Vijay Malia. Malia. I believe. Malia. Yeah, Malia. Yeah, yeah. India. Hopefully, we don't have a Derilton episode, friends. <laughs> Comedy. <laughs> Derilton and, and also Anthony Hubert. You made that a few times. <laughs> Angus, how dare you bring that up? <laughs> but I did. CJ. I did. Yes. Malia. Uh, right. Cool. Yeah, Ma Malia. Okay. 
Before the teams had even arrived at the Mugello circuit for the ninth round of the 2020 Formula 1 calendar, Racing Point announced they would be terminating Sergio Perez's two-year contract with the team and replacing the 30-year-old Mexican with four-time world champion and current Ferrari driver Sebastian Vettel for 2021, after he signed what is believed to be a three-year contract with the soon-to-be-renamed Aston Martin F1 team. Perez, or as he's fondly known on the paddock, Checo, has been with Racing Point slash Force India for six years and admitted, quote, it hurt a bit to be dumped by a team that he helped to save from administration back in 2018, when he personally coordinated efforts with senior members of the team to remove former owner Vijay Mala and allow Lawrence Stroll to take over the team. On track, Perez has been integral to much of the team's success. He secured five of the team's six podium finishes, finished in second place with the constructors twice and qualified as high as fourth with the outfit on a whopping nine occasions. Not much has changed this season either. The Mexican is ninth in the Drivers' Championship with 44 points and is only 13 points shy of his teammate Lance Stroll. This being particularly impressive considering he missed both British Grand Prix after testing positive for COVID-19 earlier this season. Now, looking a little deeper at his stats, Sergio hasn't finished outside of the top 10 this season, has outqualified his teammate five times out of seven, and has successfully completed every race he started in 2020. You'd have to go all the way back to Singapore 2019 to find the last time Perez didn't actually complete a race, and even that was due to an oil leak. Nevertheless, the signing of the 33-year-old German Sebastian Vettel demonstrates a clear statement of the team's ambition to establish themselves at the front of the grid on a permanent basis. Furthermore, in spite of Vettel's clear dip in form over the last two years, the signing of a multi-time world champion is undoubtedly a huge commercial opportunity that this upstart team just frankly couldn't afford to turn down, regardless of how consistent Perez has been for the team over the last six years. So... Where next for Checo? The experienced Mexican has been linked to Alfa Romeo and Haas. Both teams have aging drivers and underperforming drivers that have failed to convince their bosses they are worthy of a new contract for 2021 yet. This could be a huge move for either team if completed, considering the Mexican is not only a consistent point scorer, as I've mentioned, but also has a great deal of financial backing from American businessman Carlos Slim, who has a net worth of, get this, 52.1 billion US dollars. In addition to this, he is also supported financially by the Mexican telecoms giants Telmex, Telcel, and Claro. Although, in addition to this, and perhaps more interestingly, reports have also been linking Checo to the second Red Bull seat. The Honda Power team are yet to announce their partner for Max Verstappen next year, and it's been suggested that Christian Horner and Dr. Helmut Marco aren't currently convinced that either their current driver, Alex Albon, regardless of his podium this weekend, or Alpha Tauri's Pierre Gasly, regardless of his win at Monza, are ready to partner Max and take the fight to Mercedes on a consistent basis next season. So, only a few quick questions for you today. What do you make of Sergio's firing and Vettel's hiring? And where do you see Checo ending up next year? if anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very dramatic story, this is, because of the way that Sergio Perez has been, there's no other, other word to put it, it's a way to put it, dumped 
by Racing Point. Um, this long, flourishing relationship with many highs, not too many lows, to be honest, because Sergio Perez has often got the most out of that Force India or Racing Point car. But he has now been unceremoniously dumped. Rumour has it, I read one article in the week, that um, the way, obviously the news was announced on the Wednesday, just before the Mugello race. According to the article I read, apparently Sergio Perez found out because his his sort of cool-down room and in the in the uh, motorhome of Racing Point at Monza was next door to Lawrence Stroll's office, and he heard Lawrence Stroll, the team owner of Racing Point, saying through the they're called walls, those things saying through the walls of the building, get the papers ready for Sebastian to sign. So the fact that he knew for a couple of days before it was publicly announced, and nobody really sort of had the sort of the gut to tell him, really shows the ridiculous nature, in my opinion, that. Um, Paris has been dumped. He's given so much to the team. As you said, Tom, he um, said, uh, Sergio Perez said himself how he basically saved the team back in 2018 when they were on the brink of collapse going into administration. Perez sued the team, um, sued the owners so that people's jobs could be saved. So he really is the reason why they're still on the grid at the moment. And for them to ditch him just like that showing clear nepotism to keep the inexperienced son of the owner as opposed to the seasoned veteran with over 170, 180 races and who's got many of their uh, their most incredible performances by sneaking podiums. Um, I can see why they've gone for Sebastian Vettel. His form may have been down this season um, and he may, be seemly, may have seemed on his way out of Formula 1, but... You just never know. The guy may be in the right car with the right team. It's clearly a toxic environment at Ferrari around him at the moment, which he just can't um, can't work in. So you never know. Like maybe joining Racing Point could be the almost the sort of the kickstart he might need to reignite the latter end of his Formula One career. And the fact he's a four-time world champion. I mean, as for Aston Martin kicking off their time in the sport as a big car brand with a one of the greatest drivers in the history of the sport leading, spearheading their team, is too good of an opportunity to miss, realistically. But at the same time, Sergio Perez has been royally shafted, in my opinion. Um, he's given so much to the team, he's saved them, um, literally. Um, and he's got... You, you, you never... Whilst you might never see a spectacular, incredible, daring performance from Sergio Perez, one thing you do get from him is always getting the most out of the car and consistency. I was looking um, at his record the last few years. He's only failed to finish four races in the last two and a half years, dating back to the start of 2018, and three of those were for mechanical failure. It shows his dependability to be able to get to the chequered flag, get through those crazy first corners like we saw at Mugello this weekend, and to get those points finishes, which can take Force India to or Racing Point to the heights they've reached in the Constructors' Championship, especially in the early years when they were really had a lack of financial backing and were punching above their weight. So I think it's a great shame that Perez has been shafted like this. Um, in terms of where he could end up, it looks like the only seats now would be at Haas or Alfa Romeo. Um, and even then, one of the priorities for those teams could be to fill their seats with Ferrari juniors, the up-and-coming Ferrari juniors in Formula 2, such as Mick Schumacher or Robert Schwartzman. I do hope Perez gets another seat. If I had to guess where he'd go, I'd have to say Haas because I'd say that they're a team wanting to get up the grid. The amount of funding Perez could bring would definitely be appealing to them and it could give them the kickstart that they need. But yeah, I sincerely hope he manages to stay on the grid because he's a very talented driver and it would be a, a massive shame to lose him in this way. To, <laughs> I'm to, say this. to quote the meme, <laughs> I'm disappointed but not surprised. 
Um, I, I mean, we knew this was coming, but obviously, yeah, I was absolutely gutted um, to see that Sergio, and also the way that he found out as well, but to see Sergio lose his seat is disappointing. For me, obviously, if they wanted to bring Seb in, which like, obviously you do, his experience, his knowledge, his wisdom about the car, the track, just the sport in general, you've got to bring him in. But for me, if you then have to lose someone to bring Seb in, it's stroll but <laughs> clearly as you said that's not going to happen because the team is owned by his father um so there's no real win situation here we all have an ideal situation but it never would have happened so obviously yeah disappointed but not surprised i yeah as i said i completely understand why they've why they've brought seb in um but they, they didn't have to do it that way with regard to perez's future i'm concerned that in a way to be honest i don't know if he will grab a seat next year I, I see Alfa Romeo definitely bringing in uh, Mick, uh, Schumacher, and, I, and to be honest, if Haas brings anyone in, I also think that they might bring someone from Formula 2. I don't know for sure, but I, that's what I see. I just see them all looking in that direction, as, um, especially as it's worked pretty well in the past. I don't know. I would be, as you said, I would be completely disappointed as well if we were to lose Sergio from the grid. But I don't think, you know, it wouldn't be the end for him. There's so many other opportunities in motorsport and high levels of motorsport. Yes, not Formula One, but where he could do so well. So many drivers who are having a tough time in Formula One or often went to Formula E. Um, you had Massa, I think, was there. And you've got Nick DeVries from Formula Two who was going to go to Formula we might have gone to Formula 1 and ended up going off there. So there's options for him, and I think we'll see him racing, but whether we'll see him on the Formula 1 grid, I'm not sure. To mm. quote the meme. Ah, yes. The meme. The meme. Just no, the meme. Just Do you know which one I mean, though? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's just the way you said it. The, <laughs> the only one that's ever. Just, you know, in, the, in the book of memes, there's only one page. You, oh, that meme, and he's closed. <laughs> anyway. The, the, the ancient um, scrolls sorry. spoke of the single meme. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Tristan, do you have anything to add? I do. <laughs> well, you know, look, you sign a deal with the devil and, you know, you get kicked up the arse. And now other teams aren't going to be looking at Sergio Perez, I'm afraid. There's the ball pit of talent that is emerging from Formula 2 with names that we've just mentioned, such as, as Mick Schumacher. And so it's going to be really, really difficult for him to get back into the sport because... We've got more drivers trying to get in to the sport than are leaving. And I know that is always the case when you've only got 20 drivers in the first place. But it's it's made even harder by the fact that there's names such as Nico Hulkenberg waiting in the wings. And with older drivers such as Kimi Raikkonen, and I know I'd usually be touting about how good Kimi Raikkonen is, but he, he's taking a valuable seat that another younger driver could have. So... Yeah, I don't. I think you're right, Liv, in your analysis that we're probably going to see him again, but not necessarily in Formula One. His best shot is going to be in a team like Haas, but again, uh, uh, whether or not they're going to pick him up is is just uh, it's just something we're going to have to wait to find out, I guess. And yeah, so I think it's a shame that he's ended up like this. He has been well and truly strolled, if you'd like, and. I really do wish him success in the future. No doubt he's the the money behind him, the backing and his raw talent will allow him to transfer nicely to another sport. You thought, you mentioned Formula E. Formula E is brilliant. There is other he could even go try his hand at something like rallying. There's there's many other drivers that set precedent that that's possible. So yeah, I, I believe he's going to do well. 
I just don't think he's just going to get back into Formula 1 because it's so difficult once he's out. And it's such a shame because, as you say, he was the reason why we're now getting Aston Martin into the into the sport. He's the reason why we have the pink Mercedes still in the sport. So, in some ironic sense, he actually did this to himself. The final section? Yeah, let's do it. You guys... I'm, I'm worried because I have like a, a reasonable amount to say and then you're going to argue about this for like 20 minutes so we need to jump on <laughs> okay alright let's go Daniel Ricciardo qualified in 8th place and finished the race in 4th while George Russell qualified in 18th and finished in 11th Liv take us through each of their races absolutely will do Tom so the drama of Sunday's race meant that two fan favourites nearly achieved key landmarks in their career. So George Russell was oh so close to scoring his first ever F1 point and Williams' first point this season. And Daniel Ricciardo very nearly achieved his first podium with Renault and his first since 2018 when he was with Red Bull. So looking at them one at a time, let's start with Daniel. Um, Daniel Ricciardo has been achieving some really solid results this season, as we know. We've discussed them in previous episodes, including three fourth places and a sixth place as well. Earlier in the season, um, Ricciardo actually made a bet with his team principal, Cyril Abitbull, that if he achieved the podium in his um, last season with Renault, then Cyril would have to get a tattoo of Daniel Daniel Ricciardo's choosing, which is obviously hilarious. And knowing Daniel Ricciardo, it'd probably be rather disgraceful and inappropriate and obviously everyone was so thought that was such a great idea and I really do think that Cyril was probably getting nervous over these past few races plenty of fourth place finishes he must have been you know I I saw lots of um comments and memes on Twitter during the race of Cyril's search search results on Google where's the nearest tattoo tattoo parlor and and you know how do I get out of Italy as soon as possible and things like that so no he was he's been very very close to getting that podium And at the second restart of the Tuscan Grand Prix this weekend, following that red flag that was caused by Stroll's puncture, Daniel Ricciardo sat in third place. This had come about due to some excellent strategy that uh, allowed Ricciardo to undercut um, other drivers as well, let's face it, as some excellent luck and and probably some good driving skill as well on avoiding those involvement in either of those big collisions. Um, So as the lights went out on that second restart, uh, Ricardo was pretty impressive off the line, to be honest. He pushed past Bottas into second place, um, only behind Hamilton. Um, So, you know, this an incredible, incredible um, start off the line and what a position to be into uh, uh, with 14 laps to go. He, his team, his fans and everyone really felt like this could be his opportunity to snatch that podium place that he so badly wanted and was hadn't experienced for so long. As we all expected, though, um, he wasn't able to hold off Bottas. No real surprise. Um, but he did still have P3 for a while. His um, And his main competitor, as we know, was Alex Albon, who didn't actually have the best restart at all, but was up into P4 behind him after just a few laps. Um, or less than that, actually. So a few laps later, Albon then made the move. He was very, very quick. His car was quick and he secured himself uh, that P3 and his first ever podium, as we've discussed. Ricardo was understandably very, very disappointed. Um, obviously, I mean, he still smiled, but that's just Daniel Ricardo for you. But he did explain that under his smile, he was very upset and admitted that it wouldn't have felt quite so bad if Alex had taken him at the restart. But it was the fact that he'd had such a brilliant restart, got into second. Alex was way back, but then he lost it due to the, you know, the lack of pace in the cars and maybe a little bit of driving in there as well. So 
that was what made him so disappointed in the sense that he did just have it for a second. Um, so tough, tough time for Daniel Ricciardo, disappointed, could have been his first ever podium with Renault and his first one in a very, very long time. Meanwhile, now in his second year of Formula One, uh, Williams driver George Russell has yet to score a single championship point. Last season, the team's only point had come from a 10th place finish for Robert Kubica, who's obviously no longer with the team. And George never scored a single one and has not this season so far either. As we've discussed, like Williams are once again having a pretty tough year results-wise, um, continuing to sit at the bottom of the table with zero points and are the only team at this point to not have scored one. Uh, Nicholas Latifi has actually been pretty close. We were just discussing and I was saying, you know, don't rule out Nicholas Latifi. He's been very close to some points with two 11th place finishes uh, so far this season. However, obviously none of them were able to be turned into that, that key point. However, um, before the second red flag, so before St um, Stroll went off um, with his puncture, Russell was sitting in ninth place, four seconds clear of Sebastian Vettel, which as we all know as Formula 1 fans is a very big gap um, and was on for achieving two points not just the one <laughs> that he so desperately wanted but two however of course Stroll went off we had that red flag and that red flag and that restart meant of course that Russell had lost his advantage he may have still been in that position however they were all the cars were then behind him they weren't that there wasn't that big gap that he'd previously had um, at the restart he suffered I read he suffered with wheel spin. That's what all the sites seem to say. Suffered with wheel spin, suffered with wheel spin. But it may have been him, to be honest. <laughs> maybe, maybe he didn't suffer, but he caused uh, wheel spin. So, you know, whether it was bad luck or whether that was a mistake from him, either way, he immediately dropped down to 12th, which was last, um, because so many cars had retired. Um, and But soon passed Grosjean again, so that was positive, to regain 11th. And so obviously then he was there on one position from the points. The only person in the way between Russell and his first ever point was, of course, Sebastian Vettel. And he fought hard, like really hard over the remaining laps to catch up with him. I mean, he was saying over the radio, like, I'm going to do my very best. He was his team were cheering him on they showed pictures of the Williams garage everyone was sat there head in their hands with nerves and he got closer each lap every time he passed the live timing tracker uh, the marker whatever you want to call it he was closer and closer the closest he actually got was uh, two thousandths of a second off obviously way into DRS range but obviously it wasn't on the right place on the track um, and he was unable sadly to make the pass before the checkered flag uh, understandably, he was completely gutted um, and described it as heartbreaking for the whole team because he had been so close, like not even just a point, but at one point he was up for two points in ninth. So what a shame for the guy. And obviously we all really, really respect and admire him. So we are, we're gutted as well. So two really, really close misses on some big achievements. But like, who do you think lost the most? Personally, I would say George Russell, um, because this this was due to be the biggest moment in his F1 career so far. Um, he would have achieved it without that red flag. Without that red flag, he was he was far enough ahead and far enough into the points that he would have, even if he hadn't have kept ninth, he probably would have kept tenth. So for me, that was just the incident, nothing that he did wrong that that made him lose that. With Ricardo, I mean, he's he's achieved the podium before, so it wasn't quite a much, as much of a as a landmark. And you know, fourth for Ricardo, obviously I'm gutted for him, but fourth for him is a great result. He's achieving them again and again, and this just shows his his skill and his talent. But at the end of the day, he lost his podium not due to the red flag, but actually due to things that uh, driving events, overtakes, etc., that happened that happened after it. And you know, Albon was quicker. Albon got past. So for me, 
Russell lost more because it was more out of his control and he fought so, so hard and it's so sad. Anyway, what do you guys think? Who's the biggest loser, George Russell or Daniel Ricciardo? Well, this is the thing. And, and no doubt Russell had, well, he had a great race, but also a not so great race at the end there and lost out a lot. Lost out a lot for Williams, something they, they, they really needed that point just to lift them up, I think. But I, I do want to make the case also for Ricardo losing perhaps more, especially more for us fans, I think, than uh, than Russell did by not getting the one point that he was really in contention for. Um, so what did what did Ricardo lose? Well, he lost the first Renault podium since 2011, his first podium with Renault and his own since 2016. And with only with Renault only nine points behind Racing Point, they really needed that third place to 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 catch up a bit more. Because I've said this before, but depending on where your competitors finish changes how valuable where you finish is. So, for example, if you come in third and your your teammate or competitor comes in fourth, then that's not as valuable as you coming in third and your teammate or competitor coming in well not finishing at all because there's there's a more there's a bigger difference in points there. And so with with racing point out of the race, they they could have really done with the Renault coming in third just to try and claw back some of those valuable points. And also, on a personal note, I feel like I lost out more because I really wanted to see Cyril get a tattoo of Daniel Ricciardo's choosing, which, as you say, Liv, is just going to be funny. So I lost out on that one. I, I, wouldn't, I haven't lost out anything on, on Williams not, not getting the one point. Yes, it might lift them up from bottom to eighth, but that's not as valuable, really, as in the constructors going from fourth to third. I would say anyway, I would argue uh, against the fact that he lost one point because, uh, in fact, when he pit- so he pitted when the safety car came out for Stroll's accident, he was, in fact, in ninth place at that time. So, therefore, would have been on course to gain two points. And if you take, let's say, there's a scenario where he gets those two points and uh, he stays ahead of Vettel and Kimi Räikkönen and Roman Grosjean do not score, then you've got a scenario where Williams go into eighth place in the Constructors' Championship because they'd be on two points ahead of Alfa Romeo on two points Williams would have more 11th place finishes so would thereby jump into eighth and Haas would drop to the bottom I would also argue that George Russell was incredibly unlucky because he almost he was he was punished for being too fast and let me explain that he when the safety when the red flag came out he was still on the lead lap so therefore would not need to unlap himself after the safety car however Kimi Raikkonen and Roman Grosjean were not on the lead lap now, to enable them, I'm not sure where this rule has come in. It might just be something I missed, but they were allowed to unlap themselves effectively. But it, with all the cars being in the pits, what this meant was they were allowed to do a full lap around the track before then rejoining the queue in the pit lane. Thereby, they had an extra lap to warm up their tyres, um, get their tyres in the right condition, and give themselves a chance of a better start. George Russell did not get this opportunity because he had been too fast and ended up still on the lead lap. And you see, I saw on uh, Instagram, they put up a video about an hour ago of Kimi Raikkonen's onboard start. And he absolutely shoots off the line. Like, he, he, he almost he goes right behind Kvyat and Norris and Albon. He's like a start that possibly could have gained him six or seven places. And you have to attribute that to him being able to do that extra lap, get his tyres a bit more warmed up. Um, and, that, and with that being a major factor. So the fact that Russell ended up being almost too fast to 
be on the or to be a lap down. I think that's desperately desperately unlucky. And the fact that the, the fact that that's ended up happening is just is almost is something you can't legislate for. In terms of the biggest loser, I would definitely say the uh, the Williams uh, the Williams car as well because. If you think of the difference in prize money that that could make, just the difference between eighth and tenth in the constructors' championship, even if it may not seem like much, that is millions and millions of pounds. And yes, I know that Williams have got this new ownership with Derilton Capital, and the money will be being pumped in more. But you still cannot underestimate what a few million pounds could do to a team that's been struggling as much financially as Williams. And like Liv said, the sort of the psychological, the mental aspect of George Russell finally getting that first point. It's been 30 odd races now and he still hasn't. It's not like it's a, it's a landmark that he was expected to break considering the Williams car the last year and a half has been so shoddy, but it's still a landmark that he would want to break and psychologically it could have done as much for him as it might do for Alex Albon getting his first podium. So because of all those factors and the fact that Russell was a combination of both, just I, not even both. I'd say just being desperately, un desperately unlucky. I would therefore say he's definitely the biggest loser. Yes, but there's no doubt George was unlucky. He probably was more unlucky than Ricardo. Ricardo was definitely lucky in his race because he, well, he experienced Verstappen crashing out. He experienced the other Ferraris crashing out. He was able to capitalise to get up to the third position, even even briefly. But we're not doing a measurement of who was unluckiest. We are doing a measurement of who lost out more. And the thing is, being unlucky doesn't necessarily mean you lose more. It, it just means that the race wasn't quite as good as, as it could have been. But the reality is, George lost less in terms of tangible things because let's face it morale boosts aren't something really that tangible money is and historically speaking because it's very hush hush what the actual numbers are the difference between fourth place in the constructors prize money and third place that that difference in, in monetary gain there is larger than going from last to eighth because that's how they weight it so the reality is ricardo lost out more because there's no, there's not going to be any other time really coming up that we can predict that the that Renault is going to be challenging for the podium because everything had to go his way. We had to have someone like Verstappen out of the picture. We had to have a scenario where the cars in front, the 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 Mercedes, were slowed down so they weren't accelerating away from the mid pack. We had to have all these things go in their favour. So the reality was is Ricardo was unable to capitalise on that and as a result lost out on the potential of more prize money. He lost out on getting Cyril that hilarious tattoo. He lost out on the first podium and he lost out on Renault's first podium since 2011. So in terms of things that were lost, I think he lost a larger number of tangible things, which is probably where this argument comes from. I do I do have something to add. I will keep it short and sweet because I'm aware that we could be here all night uh, discussing who is the biggest loser. But let's look at this in terms of results, which ultimately is the most important thing, whichever way that you spin it. So looking at Ricardo's last three races, he finished in fourth, sixth and fourth again. So you'd say a fourth place in this race at the Mugello circuit would be on par with how uh, Renault have been doing recently and would be the peak performance uh, currently of this Renault car. Bear in mind that the sixth and fourth before these two races were completed with a near full or complete grid, all finishing the race. Now let's compare this to Williams' car performance. So over the last three races, because I've used that 
for a card. I use this now for Russell. So Russell's got 11th. Bear in mind, however, there is only 12 cars that finish the race. When we look at the Williams car, or specifically Russell's car, and Russell in the seat driving the thing, over the last two races where there was a nearly complete or and or full grid, a more normal race, shall we say. So when you look at Russell when he's driving that Williams car, when he's completing, when he's finishing a race in a near full grid, he's either, the highest he's finished is 14th. So therefore, if we're looking at the opportunity that Russell had to get a point or points, bear in mind that Haas are only on the solitary one point in ninth in the Constructors' Championship, and you bear in mind how well that Williams car does ordinarily compared to Ricardo uh, on a full grid and how well Ricardo's done recently, you've got to say because of the opportunity lost compared to the past results, that in my view, and this is not objective fact by any means, but Russell is the biggest loser of this race. The end. And so ends episode 10 of F1 in Review. Thank you, dear listener, for once again sticking with us as we talk about a vast array of topics today, very much focused on the race of this episode because, to put it frankly, so much happened. First of all, we talked about Alex Albon. Finally, he has finally got that podium finish, a third place finish at the Magello Ring. Lewis Hamilton wasn't there to spoil the party a third time. Third time lucky, they may say, or maybe they don't. Uh, secondly, we spoke about the restart, the, the chaotic restarts in which you thought, okay, we're about to get underway again after the, the safety car. Here comes Bottas to zoom through and for everyone to follow and for racing to resume. However, it was not to be. The, as, as said by many commentators about this race, the start of the pack uh, decided the race hadn't started, but the back end had decided it had. We were talking about, you know, who's to blame for this, if anybody, how this has all happened, and whether or not there should be any repercussions at all. And thirdly, we've spoken about Sergio Perez and Sebastian Vettel. It was told to all of us, to the F1 world, and fans alike, that Sergio Perez would be dumped by Racing Point, soon to be renamed uh, Aston Martin F1, and that Sebastian Vettel would be replaced. Huge news, considering Vettel would have been without a drive for next season, had it not been for the Stroll family coming to his rescue. We've been discussing who wins from this. Does Sergio Perez get a drive next year? Does he not? Does this improve Aston Martin moving forwards? We've delved into that can of worms. And finally, we've spoken about Daniel Ricciardo and George Russell. You're probably thinking to yourself, how did we conflate the two? They finish at different ends of this reduced pack. Um, but we've been looking at who's the biggest winner and who was the biggest loser from this position that they finished in. Daniel Ricciardo finished in fourth, could have got third. Uh, George Russell finished in 11th, sure, but could have easily got 10th and could have got the first points for Williams. We could be here all day and all night discussing who won the most, who lost the most, but um, we're keeping it as concise as we can. So thank you very much once again for listening to F1 in Review, episode 10. Thank you very much to Tristan, Angus and Liv, as always, for your great expertise. And we'll see you in episode 11 next week. There'll be no racing next week, so we'll be discussing a vast array of Formula 1 news and interesting topics, which I'm sure we'll all find in due course. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Oh yeah, no racing next week, so I guess it's going to be a mystery box of exciting F1 topics. A feast for the listeners' ears.